Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to episode 40. I'm back after a week-long break, and I hope that in my absence, you had a great time listening to the replay of episode 8 with my good friend Mike Vacanti last week. For this week, I'm really, really excited about today's guest. This is going to be a timely and very important episode. Michaela Kiner joins me today to talk about her powerful new book, Female Firebrand. So if you're not sure what a female firebrand is, we're going to get to that in a minute. But I'll tell you this. I read it. It's a page turner. And women listeners, I'm speaking to you right now. Whatever your generation, background, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or social status, you're going to nod in recognition at the stories of the successful women featured in this book because their stories, they may be your stories. Female Firebrands is an honest, modern, and solutions-oriented guide for dealing with situations women know all too well. Sexual harassment, not being taken seriously, and being talked over, passed over, underpaid, and underappreciated. You're going to read this book and hopefully be listening to this podcast many times over and walk away from it knowing that you're not alone. But not only that, if you're early in your professional career, you can save years of heartache and frustration by learning what's worked for those inspiring and brave women who came before you. So let me tell you, it's a book women will obviously identify with, but should be mandatory reading for men in leadership positions. So who is Michaela Kiner? Well, she spent 15 years in HR leadership roles at Microsoft, Starbucks, Amazon, PopCap Games, and Redfin. In 2015, she founded Reverb, which helps companies create healthy, inclusive cultures that engage and inspire their employees. She's a certified executive coach and is a native of Seattle. She is married to Henry, a musician and an artist and teacher, and they have two children. So it's my honor and pleasure to welcome you to the Love in Action podcast. Thanks so much for having me with you today, Marcel. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yes, so am I. And as we always do, we start our guest off on a gratitude moment. So what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, as you mentioned, I have two kids, both are teenagers, and I smile because they still talk to me every day, which <laughs> I interpret as um, they like me, which is an achievement with teenagers. If you're a parent, you know that. Yeah, I do know that. <laughs> so I know that this is going to be a deep and personal conversation, and I know that it may bring up some painful moments for some listeners. 
But I want them to know that through it all, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's going to be hope here. So let's start from the beginning. Um, in your own words, what's the book about, especially that title, Female Firebrands? What, what inspired you to write that? Yes, you know, I had heard the word firebrand in the past, and I, I saw it again. I think someone had used it on Twitter, and it grabbed me. The dictionary definition of a firebrand is a bit of a rabble rouser, somebody who doesn't accept the status quo. And then I chose to redefine it around the women who are featured in the book. And those women in my mind, they're people who are successful, um, but not only successful professionally, they are mission-driven women who you know, want to leave the future better than things were in the past. And they're also, each one of them, very staunch advocates for other women. Part of what I liked about that word female firebrand is that it's not overused and it's not a cliche because there are so many words that are floating around there right now, like maverick or iconoclast. And sometimes when we hear those words, we, we don't even hear them because they're overused. So female firebrand, I thought, um, did not fall into that bucket. Mm. So I want to get this off right off the bat here early on in the episode. We're in the middle of the uh, hashtag me too and hashtag times up era. So it's easy to assume that this is a book, just another flavor of the month book about feminists or women's empowerment to capitalize on these movements. But you don't really wallow in blame or anger in this book. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting about those movements. I've, there's already been news, you know, uh, isn't Me Too done? Shouldn't we be moving on? Well, I can tell you it's not done. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Me Too did a wonderful job of surfacing a lot of bad behaviors and stereotypes and things that have been going on in the workplace and in society for many, many years. But we're only just starting to scratch the surface in terms of change and in terms of improvement. Um, you're right, it's, you know, I took a very positive look at the issue and my positivity comes from, one, just those movements themselves have given people, women and men both, better tools and better vocabulary to talk about what's going on and to affect change. And we already see some differences coming out. In the book, I, the, the 13 female firebrands are mid-career professional women. We also interviewed 10 younger women who we refer to as the next generation. They ranged in age from 17 to early 30s. And what we saw with the younger generation, because of those movements, they already had more and better information. They were quicker to recognize inappropriate remarks and behavior they were quicker and more comfortable raising concerns and complaints and also voting with their feet, meaning if they were in a disrespectful work environment and they saw that that wasn't going to change, they were actually more ready to leave that organization and find themselves a better place. So before we get into some of the stories of these women, I, I want to get into your story because you have a journey as well as a professional. So tell us what you personally saw and heard and experienced. As you mentioned, I spent 15 years in human resources, mostly at large companies. In the end, I worked at a couple of startups. When a lot of people are around, things happen. It's just a reality. Things meaning 
Um, sometimes there are inappropriate remarks. There can be pregnancy discrimination. There can be sexual harassment. It happens, unfortunately. As an HR professional, what I learned early on was that the leader sets the tone for their organizations. And I've been fortunate to work with many, many incredible leaders, um, many men, as well as uh, some women. And there was, I call it a no-nonsense um, culture in their organizations, which meant that people knew that you don't say something inappropriate, that you will be held to account if um, you do something like that that's you know malicious or that has a negative impact. And as the HR professional, those leaders backed me. That might not sound that remarkable, but sometimes the person who's committed that infraction is a high performer. Sometimes that person is the longtime best friend of the GM or the vice president. And those are the situations where the rubber hits the road and you have to look around and say, are we really going to take action? And in the vast majority of cases that I was involved in, the answer was yes. Yeah. Do you have a quick story that it was so blatant that uh, people wonder, no, this cannot be going on, but it actually does happen. I do. I do. I can pick for many. You okay. know, I'll take one. And uh, if, if you're in business, uh, this will sound familiar because it happened at the annual sales conference and uh, a lot of bad things happen at sales conferences. It's just a place where, you know, people are riled up. There's a lot of energy. Um, unfortunately, there's often a lot of celebration, which includes heavy drinking. So sure enough, this, this company was having the annual sales conference and um, one of the men was very drunk, and uh, his way of meeting people he, that he chose that evening was to ask them a series of five very inappropriate questions, which I will not repeat on your podcast. <laughs> and he, he did this in front of other people, women and men both. The interesting thing was the way this came to our attention in HR was that a new employee called us, and he said, you know, at my previous company, this would not have been acceptable. I don't know if it's acceptable here, but I wasn't comfortable with it. And when we looked into the situation, he admitted what had happened. There were witnesses to what had happened. And he just said, yeah, that, that did happen, but I was drunk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to say, well, that's um, actually not a good excuse for harassing and offending your fellow coworkers. And that person had to be let go. Mm. Okay, so you interviewed uh, women from really all kinds of backgrounds. I was quite impressed by the diversity, right? Race, ethnicity, immigration status, and even sexual orientation. Why was that important? What did you learn from them? Yeah, it was so obvious to me that the way to share stories that the most people, women and men, could resonate with was by sharing the stories of a diverse group of women. Um, I, I learned from them, you know, and I had this moment where I thought, well, I've spent 15 years in human resources. I, you know, I work with women leaders and I work with businesses for a living and I learned things during every interview. And I was probably shocked at least once during every interview. That was a really good litmus test for me because I thought, well, if I'm being surprised, uh, other people who don't live in this world every day will certainly be surprised. You know, interviewing um, several women of color, I actually learned things that I had never known in the workplace. One example was Erin Jones, um, who's a six foot 
tall black woman. And as she says, six foot five with the Afro, she wears a big Afro <laughs> on purpose to let other young women know that you can look how you want to look. And Erin told me, she said, in my entire professional career, I've never dressed down for casual Friday because I could not give up an ounce of respect. Mm. As a white woman, I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know there were people who felt they couldn't take advantage of casual Friday. Ruchika Talshian, who's a Singaporean immigrant, shared that she didn't used to want to let people know she was in an arranged marriage because that would lead to assumptions about her. Well, she must be traditional. She must be submissive. So these are things that as, you know, a middle-class white woman, I've never had to think about. Hmm. But okay, so this is really interesting to me. Was there anything that really surprised you that just made you think, okay, no, I wasn't expecting that from the, the interviews or the data that you collected? There was. My writing process, once I had identified the women, I created a list of about 11 questions and I asked them all the same questions and then looked for the themes in their responses. I didn't ask a question about how women held other women back, but I got an outpouring of personal stories. I know we're going to talk about this more, um, but what I learned was that female rivalry is alive and well, and that was not a topic I even intended to write about. Yeah, yeah, we're going to touch on that in a minute. But you talk about something that I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced firsthand, this double standard. So, you know, women are told to be tough, more assertive, more direct. And at the same time, they're told you're too edgy, you're too intense, or you're too direct. And you said in the book, and I quote, basically, leadership wants you to command the room without being commanding. This is a classic double bind. So I guess just to uncover that, why is it so common? Yeah. And uh, for that remark that you just repeated, I want to credit Liz Dolan from her podcast uh, that came from Liz. You know, here's how prevalent this is. Yeah. I literally heard two stories about this exact thing yesterday. I mean, it is that prevalent. And, you know, we have to look outside of the workplace at society to understand what are the behaviors that we expect of women we raise girls, uh, hopefully not today, but definitely in my era, to be nice, to be uh, harmonious, to be compassionate. And those are all fantastic traits. But we raise boys to be competitive and to lead and to win. And that shapes uh, all of our impressions of gender roles. You know, what, what does a successful man look like versus what does a successful woman look like? And this classic double bind, which is that if uh, men and women behave the same way, there's actually a research study about this where the men and women behaved the same way, spoke the same words, and the men ended up being described as drivers. So that was a very positive description. The women were described as pushy. They were criticized. So what we learn from that is when women behave the same way, we don't receive the same feedback. We're perceived differently. And this really gets to not asking women to behave differently, but uh, a much harder problem, which is asking all of us to change the lens that we're looking through. Um, the aggressive versus assertive one, I think, is the most common. And if a woman demonstrates leadership qualities, she will be deemed 
aggressive, which is negative. And she yeah. will be told be less aggressive, more assertive, which actually has no meaning. There's no behavioral change uh, that's going to result in you know people viewing her better when she shows up as a leader. Okay. So what problem does this pose for women professionals? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a, <laughs> this is why we call it a double bind, right? Is I want to be successful. Um, for many women, we still also, we do want to be liked, you know, that's something that, that we may have been raised with. And, you know, there are words that you probably hear women using more frequently than men words like, I, you know, I was just wondering, or what if we did this? And, you know, the research shows is that women can benefit from using some of those kinds of phrases, some of those kinds of attitudes but we have to use it selectively. It's tricky for us. If I say those things all the time, people say, well, she's tentative. She's, you know, she lacks confidence. But if I forego those words altogether and act like, you know, my male peer acts, I will get that aggressive label today. Yeah, I hope one day that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Let's bring in uh, a few terms. We're, you know, we're used to hearing some of this stuff, but but we may not really know what it means. So for example, unconscious bias. In your own words, what is it? And how do we see it played out in the workplace? Yeah, this is such an important idea because we all have unconscious bias. Um, I'll share my own personal story. There's a tool that I mentioned in the book called the IAT. That's the Implicit Association Test. It's a free online test. And there are many versions. You can take the IAT with regard to race, with regard to gender, other um, different identities. Uh, I'm a feminist. I think I can say, you know, I am, I am all for uh, women and women's success. And yet when I took the IAT, it still showed that I had my own bias around gender roles, for instance, as it relates to careers, as it relates to, you know, domesticity and housework and things like that. Why do I have those views? It's because I was raised in this society where those views are pervasive. They're pervasive in how we're treated and taught as children. They're pervasive in our schools, in the media, and in our workplace. The goal is not for me to eradicate my own unconscious bias. I believe that would be humanly impossible. But the goal is when a biased thought comes to my mind, I need to be aware of that thought. A great example is if I say, uh, today we're going to interview an engineer. Most of us probably picture a man, you know, maybe it's even a young guy in a hoodie. <laughs> like that's our impression of an engineer. Uh, but that engineer might just as likely be a young woman. So if I can catch myself having that thought and making that stereotype, then I can become aware and realize, oh, that was a stereotype. I'm aware and I can move on. That, that's really, to me, the importance of unconscious bias. If you don't increase your own awareness, you might continue to think, well, men are engineers. So if I see a resume of a female engineer or a candidate who's a female engineer, I might make assumptions about her. Well, she can't really be good at coding. You know, women don't make good engineers. And that's when uh, the problem comes into play. Mm. What about face-to-face -face interaction and being in the same room with first impressions, things of that nature. What are some unconscious biases that males uh, perceive towards females in a work setting? Yeah. 
You know, I, I think a, a common one is based on looks and that if a woman is attractive, she might be less intelligent. That just shows up for people. Um, it shows up. And so, if you, again, if you find yourself making that assumption, you need to catch yourself. Yeah. It's interesting also just um, size, you know, physical size and appearance. And so I actually had a leader, I was recommending a young woman who he knew to do some work with him. And he said, he was unsure, you know, and she was an excellent performer. She did great work. And I said, well, what is it about her? Why are you hesitating? And he said, she's young, you know, young meaning inexperienced. And I, I relayed her entire background, all the professional experience she had had, you know, her history at previous companies. And I even reminded him, she's done great work for you. You know, what, would you just give her a shot? And he agreed. But, you know, she wasn't young and inexperienced. What she was was she was very petite and soft-spoken. And so it made a different impression on him it, that did not represent her capability. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so can we flip the tables? Does it work both ways where females have unconscious bias towards males? I'm six foot four. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not built like a linebacker, but I'm pretty tall and I can be intimidating with my public speaking voice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. So it can be intimidating if um, men, the, the physical size, the stature, even a level of confidence, right? Men often come into a setting with a much higher degree of confidence that shows up. And as a woman, I might assume he knows more than me. He has more expertise than me. Now, that may or may not be true, but you know, what if I then censor myself, I remain quiet because I think he has all the answers one that I've observed myself that I've had to really overcome is there can be an assumption um, because men do have a greater privilege that, well, he's, he has it all and he's got it all figured out and he's going to succeed in business, you know, just because he's a six foot tall white guy. And that's yeah. not necessarily true either. I mean, we all have our, you know, different challenges that we're working through regardless of our level of privilege. So unconscious bias is really also about how we can hold yourself back because of the, how you perceive your own limitations when it may not be reality for you. That's right. And uh, I'll even add one more term, which is stereotype threat. Mm. So this is where you, exactly what you described. If I know that uh, women are assumed to be, uh, let's say, less smart at math and I'm working on a compensation project. I might actually be so much on pins and needles because I, I know that, oh, women aren't supposed to be good at math. Well, maybe I'm not as good at math as, you know, the, the guy who did this job before. And uh, I can internalize that and almost psych myself out so much that I end up performing worse in that project, even though I did have the skills. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's... Uh put ourselves in the role of many of our listeners. They're, they're in leadership roles. How can we as leaders fight off unconscious bias? Yeah, I would really encourage everyone to go out there and take the, the IAT. You know, see what it brings up for you. See what you learn about yourself. And, you know, you don't have to broadcast your scores on Facebook, but find a trusted friend or colleague or mentor and have a conversation about it. Um, so that, again, you can start increasing your awareness and making that change. The other thing is just every group you're a part of, whether it's um, your team, you're leading a company, you are on the PTA, you know, what, whatever leadership roles you're in, 
always think about both the diversity of the people around you, so whose voices are and are not present. When you look at who's not present, then that can encourage you to seek out those people who aren't represented and invite them in. And then when you do have a diverse team or organization, you have to pay attention to inclusion. Otherwise, you're just expecting everyone to come in and assimilate to whatever exists today. And most likely they will leave. You know, they won't feel welcome. They won't feel recognized. So diversity plus inclusion. Okay, let's bring up another word which you dedicate a whole chapter to and you touched uh, on it a little bit before and that's privilege, especially male privilege. And again, I know this because I read the book. There's no male bashing here. You and I are calling both men and women to be solutions driven. But we need to uncover the problem first, which may sting some. So help us define male privilege and how it, it holds women back in business. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I want to address uh, in a moment, you know, all of the men who have been wonderful mentors, sponsors, and advocates to me. Male privilege, first of all, it's a fact. It's not a criticism. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have done something wrong. But because our country, our government, our workplaces were built by and for men, uh, men are just more likely to have an easier time. The systems, the structures, the assumption about what does a leader look like, these things are all, they favor the male attributes. So that's, that's what the privilege means, is that likely you're gonna have an easier time than both white women, women of color, as well as, as men of color, frankly. Um, what can we do about it? You know, the, the biggest thing for anyone who has any form of privilege, and uh, you know, I have the privilege, right, with regard to my race, so being Caucasian, I also have what we would call an oppression of being a woman, right? So I have both privilege and oppression, which many of us do but we can use our privilege for good. And the, a, the smallest example that can have a huge impact is, let's say uh, a woman is being talked over, interrupted in a meeting. This happens all the time. There's research that women are interrupted much more frequently than men. If you're the male advocate in that room, you can pause, you know, you don't have to call anyone out, you don't have to shame or blame anyone, but you could just say, oh hey, I'd love to hear Michaela finish her thought. Hmm. It's that easy. You know, that's what an advocate or an ally looks like. At a bigger, you know, sort of bigger impact organizational level, if you're not having these kind of conversations in your workplace, bring them in. You know, find the experts. You may have internal experts. If you have a diversity or HR function in your company, if you have employee resource groups in your company, uh, those people know how to navigate some of these issues around privilege. And then there's a lot of outside firms who do the same thing. I appreciate that you came up with some solutions as well, because I know it's prevalent, just like unconscious bias. That's the nature of, of the workplace. Another term uh, is, and, and this one I learned for the first time, the glass cliff. What is it? And, and how does that hold women back? Yeah, this is, this is a tricky one. And a lot of people haven't heard of this. Sometimes positions become vacant that are risky. It could be a company that's going through big challenges and so the current leader is ousted. A current political example was Brexit where Theresa May was brought in and uh, struggled <laughs> in that role. So these are situations where they're very high risk. 
someone's looking for the next leader to come in. And frequently that leader is a woman, hmm. perhaps because uh, people who have other leadership opportunities don't want to take these. They're so risky. And they're so risky that they're fraught. And the likelihood of failure is high. So Teresa May, um, Marissa Mayer, you know, these are classic examples of women who came in to lead in difficult situations and um, they struggled and they weren't successful. And not, not only because of their own doing, right? Because of the situation itself. And on top of that, to add insult to injury, the public views them as incompetent in the process, right? Of course, yeah. You know, in, in many cases, people are just waiting for them to fail anyway. They're watching for the slightest thing and uh, it gets highlighted. You know, we could, um, well, we could talk about a number of male executives who do all kinds of outlandish things, you know, in public and on podcasts. And uh, sometimes people admire them for that. They think, oh, they're, you know, they're a cowboy, right? They're, uh, they're just irreverent. That's cool. But women are definitely held to a higher standard. Yeah. Do you think that this is strictly a male privilege problem as well to cause the glass cliff effect? You know, it's not. Um, both women and men can be sexist. And, you know, there's a word when we talk about women, it's internalized sexism. It's a lot like what I described when uh, I shared my IAT results, which is that, you know, I was raised in a sexist society too. And if I'm not conscious of that, if I'm not aware of that, I might also hold women to a higher standard, just, just the same way that men do. Mm. Okay. So can we come up with some solutions around the glass cliff? How can uh, we uh, safeguard against women being put into these high risk roles where they're going to yeah. fail anyway, right? Right, right. Well, one of the best ways I think is to offer more uh, normal risk level roles to women. You know, let's get more women into leadership. Let's get more women onto boards and more women uh, into entrepreneurship and owning companies. Because I believe if women had enough genuine leadership opportunities, they wouldn't be very attracted to these glass cliff situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to bring up the hot topic, and here it is, gender pay equity. So we know that women have been historically paid less than men for performing the same job, right? One source in your book says that women in America make 80 cents on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. And the gap is even wider if you're of black or Hispanic descendancy. So in fact, blacks earn 62.5% and Hispanic women 54.4% respectively of the paychecks their male counterparts earn. Now, I don't know where to start because this is such a complicated and touchy topic but you did give some reasons as to why women don't always fight for equal pay. I don't know if that's a good starting point. You tell me. Sure. You know, like you said, it's, it's complex and multifaceted. So that's as good a starting point as any. Okay. Many women were never taught to negotiate. That's one. I know when I took my first job out of grad school, I did not know I was supposed to negotiate. I, I took what was offered. I was, you know, happy with it. I was really lucky, and uh, actually this is one of my many list of male advocates. Uh, later in that same company, I got a new boss, and he sat me down one day, and he said, why did you join this company at this salary? And I just, I looked at him, I said, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I didn't know I was supposed to do different. 
And, you know, he advocated for me. I mean, he ended up getting me, I think it was four promotions over three years to catch me up to where he thought that I should be. So you want to talk about advocacy in action. You know, this, this was something that he took it upon himself to notice and do. But we don't negotiate as much. Um, often when women negotiate back to the double standard and double bind, we're seen differently. Oh, she's being too aggressive. Oh, she's, you know, asking for too much. So it can be harder for us to negotiate. And then historically, because women have been at a lower rate of pay, you know, if the new employer is saying, well, what's her current pay? I'm only going to give her a certain percent increase. The women are just going to remain behind their male counterparts. There are states that have put laws into place now where you're not permitted to ask a person about their salary history for this reason, because otherwise we just keep perpetuating the problem. Hmm. And so what can both sides of the table do, the female employee and her employer do to fix the problem and close the gap? Yeah. So for women, always negotiate. I always, there is always something on the table. It might be more money. It might be a bigger bonus. It might be something else you value, more vacation time, more stock, more flexibility, but always, always, always negotiate the first offer. The other thing I learned from a colleague when I went out on my own um, was she said, you know, think about your rates. What are you going to charge? Now add 25% because women, uh, we undervalue ourselves. We ask for less than yeah. men do. And, and uh, I put that into practice when I started my business. I just asked for more than I was comfortable with. But I don't want to put this all on the women, right? Ideally, women wouldn't have to use all of these antics because we would just pay them fairly. So what I would encourage companies is um, do an audit. You know, if you are small, you can do this manually. You can do a salary audit. You can compare women and men in the same jobs and um, look for those gaps and fix those gaps. If they're big, you might not fix them overnight, but you might create uh, a plan where you do some adjustments now and in six and 12 months. If you're a bigger company, the really great news is that there are some firms who are developed to address and fix this problem with automation. So there are actually tools that didn't exist even five years ago that can help you both identify where those gaps are um, and show you the cost of correcting it and show you where those corrections need to be made. The other one, I mean, this could feel controversial, but I've done this as a leader. Um, I have paid women more than they ask at times because I could see two identical candidates. I can see the woman is asking for less or she's being humble and just saying, oh, I, I just love this work. You know, I'm comfortable with whatever you can pay me, but I want to pay her equal to what I'm paying the man. Um, so I think it's top down and bottom up. Uh, women right now, we do have to keep asking. But boy, if you're in a leadership role, you can do a lot to fix this, regardless of whether the women are raising their hands. Thank you for that. Great, great strategies. I want to bring back uh, female rivalry. So you have this whole chapter called Send the Elevator Back Down, right? Which is about that topic, female rivalry. So the problem isn't strictly male to female counterparts. That's right. That's right. So I mentioned I heard just this outpouring of stories where women, they competed with men as well, but that didn't feel bad to them. Yet there were these relationships where 
women's relationships with other women were characterized by things like bullying, gossip, being thrown under the bus, and really just women holding other women back. And it felt so bad. Back to this notion of, you know, aren't we all facing a bunch of challenges and wouldn't it just be better if women could join forces as a sisterhood? So this felt really bad. And I had to really dig in and understand why this was even happening. One of the biggest causes that I saw was the reality still that sometimes there's only one seat at the table for a woman that could be on a team, that could be among leaders, that could be on a board. When women see that there's only one seat, they can look at other women as the enemy. And that really seemed to me to be the root of this uh, negative and oppressive behavior between women. Um, there are women in the book who literally went out and formed their own companies because they said, I just couldn't find a workplace where I could be collaborative, where I was able to both support and get support from my women colleagues. So I went out and I created that environment for myself. Hmm. I love that uh, at the end of each chapter of your book, you have these checklists um, that uh, professional women and even male advocates, HR people can kind of refer to. Tell me a little bit about why you included those at, at the end of each chapter. Well, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of talk about these topics. There's, you know, this isn't a mystery to people, right? That there's sexism at work, that, uh, you know, the Me Too movement has exposed so much behavior. And companies can still be slow to change. You know, in the wake of Me Too, you would be surprised, but a lot of companies still haven't put in place new policies, new processes, unconscious bias training, anti-harassment training, all of these things that we know we need. I have a really strong belief, though, that for the individual, change can happen quickly. And, you know, you can go to work smarter tomorrow than you were yesterday. So I really wanted to put tools in the hands of the individual. And as a woman, if there's something here that allows you to stand up for yourself uh, in a difficult moment, to advocate for another woman in a difficult moment, or as a male ally to enter this conversation and uh, get a little more comfortable offering your support to women. I just wanted to put those tools into people's hands. Yeah, yeah. So for those male allies listening and going, hey, I'm not going to stand for any of this stuff happening in my business or workplace, how can men be advocates? Maybe use their privilege for good. Are some yeah. examples of that? I do, I do. I'll give you three tips. The first one, literally tell the women you work with, just turn to them and tell them, I'm an advocate when it comes to equality. I've had men say that to me, and I had a former colleague who just wrote me on LinkedIn one day and said, I see the work you're doing, I'm an advocate, call me whenever you need help. So it really helps for women to know that you're in our corner and we can uh, rely on you, we can confide in you, we can ask for help when you need it. The second is, you know, stand up and, and be that advocate when, you know, the inappropriate joke gets made, the sexist remark, the woman gets interrupted. It's so much easier for a guy, speak of another guy in that moment. And even if it's just like a, hey, time out, we don't say that here, you know, rewind, we don't do that here. So much easier for the guy to do that than for the woman who's in the room. Um, the last one, you know, look around again at the groups and teams that you're a part of and look at both 
are there women participating and is there room for those women's voices to be heard? Mm. You might need to amplify them. Amplify means if I give a great, and nobody listens to me in the comment, you might say, hey, hold on. Michaela just had a really great idea. Michaela, would you repeat that mm. for the room? Right? That Things like that are, um, they have a, a much bigger impact than you might realize. Yeah, yeah. And I would even go as far as saying that as a leader, you want to say that to anybody, whatever your gender or orientation is. It's just a way of empowering people to express their voice. That's right. That's right. So much of this work, it is actually about respect yeah. and it is about values. And it's so true. You know, these things happen more frequently to, uh, to white women, to women of color, to men of color as well. But nobody should be interrupted. Nobody should be talked over, uh, passed over. And so really, we can all just be better advocates to each other. Yeah, yeah. Michaela, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from uh, this project, from, from, from writing this book and the research? Mm. <laughs> that is a tough one because I have learned so much. You know, what it really reinforced to me, uh, it's actually how much good is going on in the world, um, how much women and the male advocates want to lift others up, want to change things for the better and are, are really sincere about improving our, both our workplaces and society. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I want to step away from the book a little bit because I'm curious about you as a professional. Who are your mentors? I have so many. I'm a believer in the, uh, they call it the board of directors approach. You're know, having different <laughs> mentors for different things. Uh, one of my favorite mentors is in the book, a woman named Mala Singh. Mala was my boss at PopCap Games. She's now the head of people at Electronic Arts. She is just one of the, the best HR professionals I know, very down to earth, very candid. Um, she has three kids. Her husband stays home with the kids. You know, we have two kids. My husband's always worked very part-time, so we both have the, that reversal of gender roles. And I, I just admire Mala and I'm inspired every time she speaks. Another one is uh, Jerry Hunter. He's the head of engineering at Snapchat. Used to be a client of mine at Amazon. I try really hard to connect with Jerry at least once a quarter because he's so wise and he's so kind and whatever we talk about, it just fuels me. It really keeps me going. Good, good. As with any leader, we are always learning and growing. Our journey never ends. So how would you like to grow and improve this year? Yeah. Well, my team and I, uh, at my, I have a day job. So my day job is I run an HR consulting company called Reverb in the Seattle area. Uh, we have a mantra of do less this year, which is less activity with the same or greater impact. I am a perpetual overscheduler. I know a lot of people can relate to me. I try to do too much. And um, just being really thoughtful about everything from what work we take on, what commitments I make, you know, even how many coffee meetings can I have? In Seattle, we love to say, do you want to grab a coffee? It's a really kind gesture and it takes an hour, you know? So um, I've just tried to be very, very thoughtful because I have to remind myself, every time I say yes to something, every coffee I say yes to, what is that taking time away from? Is that taking time away from me getting home and having dinner with my kids? And that's usually the standard I hold up to say, you know, is, is this a good use of my time versus something else I might be doing? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, touch just a little bit on Reverb, but what would you like our listeners to know about your company? Right. At Reverb, we do HR consulting, leadership development, and executive coaching, and we do it all through a lens of inclusion. What that means to me is that no matter what you call us to talk about, uh, we want to plant some seeds with you. You know, we want to ask you, do you have a diversity statement? Do you have a diversity plan? Have you thought about gender pay equity? If not, you know, that's something that we should talk about. Maybe you're a five-person company and we don't want to talk about that today, but we sure want to talk to you about that six months down the road or whenever you start to grow. You know, it used to be that I felt like Reverb was over here on one side and that was the consulting business. And then uh, I had all of this passion in my work with women in leadership, women in tech. One day, uh, Michelle, who's my operations person, referred to that as my social justice side. And I saw that it felt separate from the company. It was really important to me to marry those two things back together. And right now, I feel like the work we do at Reverb is really in lockstep with um, the work that I'm trying to do with female firebrands. This has been an enlightening and timely conversation. So we bring it home with two questions. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like our listeners to know? What's tugging at me is that Life is tough right now for our, our kids and our teens. There's so much going on. There's so much online and social media, and it can lead to uh, a lot of you know, stereotypes as well as anxiety, just given what, what are the images and messages that kids are consuming. Limit that screen time if you can, and uh, at the very least, talk to your kids about the content. Talk to your kids about the images and stereotypes, and you know, just make sure they have multiple points of view on what they're seeing. Mm. And finally, if there is one thing you'd like our listeners to absolutely walk away with that's going to make a difference in their lives, what would that be? Yeah, I'd say be ready for that hot moment that we've talked about. And the best way to be ready is have a phrase that's comfortable for you. It might be, I didn't find that funny. It might be like Terry Sitterman in the book said, someone says something inappropriate, you can turn around and tell them, I'll give you 20 seconds to take that back. She is Michaela Kiner, and the book is called Female Firebrand. It's been a pleasure and an honor. If people want to connect with you, how can they do that? I am all over social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Awesome. It's been great to talk. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Marcel. Ah, I can't thank Michaela Kiner enough for stepping into her truth and being courageous and vulnerable enough, as well as the women featured in female firebrands to come out and share their stories and teach us how to become more inclusive, more respectful toward one another, and see the beauty and value and diversity of all humankind. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for spreading the message of love in action to the world. If you have a moment, we would love your positive ratings and reviews on iTunes. A big thank you to my production team at One Stone Creative. Go check them out if you're thinking about your own podcast. Next week, I sit down and chat with Nate Regeer, author of Conflict Without Casualties. Until next time, don't forget love in action. It's what will truly 
set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.